from the Craig Newmar Graduate School of Journalism. This is Audiophiles. I'm your host, Christian Azario. Today on Audiophiles, we'll meet Indian Americans celebrating Diwali and what it means to have the holiday recognized by the city government. It used to be a floating holiday for us, like optional, but now if it's like a regular vacation and a holiday, then it's really exciting. Then to Harlem with the story of workers in an imaginary hair braiding salon. If I braid in hair, if they're happy, that makes me happy because it's to me like I'm doing something good for somebody and the person is happy. I'm doing my job. I love my job and I'm proud to be a hair braider. And finally, with the auto workers and actor strike coming to a close, New York City's new non-residential buildings contract negotiations have only just begun. Most times tenants don't notice us, the little people. We want to make our presence known. These workers here are the people that run this city. All that and more here on Audiophiles. Two of the most high-profile strikes across the country are coming to a close this month. Both auto workers and actors came to tentative deals with respective employers. But for janitors, repair people, and porters across New York City's non-residential buildings, negotiations over a new contract have only just begun. Audiophiles reporter Safia Riddle attended a rally in Midtown. It was the middle of the day on Thursday, and a massive crowd of people waving purple and yellow flags gathered on 6th Avenue, disrupting the heavy traffic of Midtown commuters that rushed by. Thousands of SEIU 32BJ members rallied ahead of the first day of contract negotiations in four years. Ina Softly has cleaned office buildings across New York City five days a week for 37 years straight. When COVID came and the city was closed, we had to come in because we couldn't work from home. I almost died from COVID. I had a fever for three weeks. My doctor couldn't break it. During the pandemic, she commuted to three Times Square every day to clean the bathrooms, kitchens, and desks of the 31-story office building. And we were there to welcome our tenants back. And they felt very safe because of us. Union leaders are demanding increased wages and pension benefits, as well as a guarantee that workers get to keep their current health insurance, which doesn't require monthly payments. Real estate firms that own offices and venues across the city hire cleaners, maintenance workers, and porters to run the buildings. And now, these firms have until the end of the month to make their opening offers for the new contract. But members at the rally were already gearing up for a fight. The union has good reason to think that the upcoming debate could be contentious. The commercial real estate industry was hit hard by the pandemic. There are almost exactly the same number of jobs across the city as there were before the pandemic, according to the State Department of Labor. But many of those jobs are still remote. On average, only half of all offices are occupied on any given workday, based on data from Castle Systems. A spokesperson for the Realty Advisory Board on Labor Relations said in an email, Without changes to increase the flexibility in our collective bargaining agreement, the future of the industry and our workers is in jeopardy. He added that the net effective rent for Manhattan commercial real estate has declined by 27% since the last contract a decrease that he said would make current demands difficult to meet. SEIU BJ32 President Manny Pastrish agreed that the economic challenges facing the commercial real estate sector are dire. But he also said that union workers and members should not be the first to feel the squeeze. But we do expect them to come in and talk about the troubles of the real estate industry. 
and much of it will be true, but they can't balance their books on the backs of cleaners in this city. So, and the only way we can be ready to make sure that doesn't happen is to be ready to fight, be ready to strike if we need to. Members say that losing access to free health insurance and failing to secure better retirement benefits would force many who have lived in New York City for decades to leave altogether. Drita Dododa has been cleaning offices on the Upper East Side for 17 years. I live with my husband and my son. And even with two incomes, we are still struggling. We cannot even think to retire because it's just scary. Union leadership and real estate companies that employ these workers have until December 20th before a strike would be called. Until then, members like Softly promise to make their demands known. Most times tenants don't notice us, the little people. We want to make our presence known. These workers here are the people that run this city. The next meeting is on the 26th of November, where real estate firms will make their first offers. For Audio Files, I'm Safia Riddle. Urban foraging is illegal everywhere in New York City, except one park in the South Bronx. The Bronx River Community Banquet showcases what prioritizing an indigenous and free harvest offers to Bronx residents. Reporter Colin Fagan has the story. I'm at the shore of the Bronx River, under a very loud six train and next to the only edible food forest in a New York City park. The Bronx River Alliance, a local environmental protection organization, is hosting the second annual community banquet to raise awareness about the Bronx River Foodway, which is now in its fifth season. Welcome to all of our attendees, our partners, our friends, and our family and our community who came out today. This is in honor of the land and all it has to offer. Alongside herbalists and foragers, chefs have come out from across the Bronx and other boroughs to showcase their dishes, all with one thing in common. I forage this, yeah. Where? You can forage it here. So this sumac is literally from like over there by the fence. That was Umer Kaku, one of the chefs who was giving away food at the banquet. He seasoned his dish, sukochat, with local sumac, as well as hot sauce with rose hips from the foodway. The, the thing that makes the, the Bronx River Foodway very unique, it's right next to, you know, like a train going through. It's right next to the Bronx River, which historically has been highly polluted. This is introducing people to things that already grow all around them, right? Like the sumac that I foraged grows all along the Bronx River. Nobody has to try to grow it. It just grows on its own. It's also, I think, a symbol of resilience for the community here, which has been through a lot. And it's, it's a, sort of, I think, a very hopeful path forward. Urban foraging is illegal in New York City. According to some historians, anti-foraging laws are rooted in the criminalization of indigenous, black, and low-income populations. Modern proponents of foraging believe that efforts to legalize and facilitate it can help address food insecurity. Jennifer Seda, the volunteer program assistant for the Bronx River Alliance, originally became involved with the Foodway for that very reason. started in 2020 um, out of necessity. 
you know, 2020, I lost my job. And so I started to think about, like, how am I going to feed myself? Now, Jennifer coordinates volunteers who maintain the foodway. She's hoping that the banquet has made more people aware of the possibilities of urban foraging in the Bronx. This space is so valuable because anyone can come at any time. This park is open pretty much all day. It's really dope because the Bronx is known for food insecurity. And a lot of us don't know that there's food growing all around us. Even weeds like mugwort and dandelions. Just knowing there's, there's food around you and you can tap into it and that it's safe is really important. I can forage anywhere in the city, but I'm worried about lead. I'm worried about pesticides. The food way is just very different in itself because we do soil testing. We make sure that it's organic. We make sure that people are able to forage safely. We teach them how to, to forage and then process the plant. In the South Bronx, where one in four residents are food insecure, the Foodway offers a unique opportunity to bring healthy, fresh food to the community. Peggy Manisette is a personal trainer who has lived in the neighborhood for decades. She only found out about the Foodway a few weeks ago, even though she lives less than 10 minutes away. This is her first event, but she's getting excited. I've noticed the difference in the changes in food that is being offered to this community, which is not the best. So to have the natural resources so close to home and accessible, it's needed, you know, especially for health-wise. And then having this environment is also great for your soul. You know what I mean? Would you like some more? Oh, you haven't! Oh my God. For audiophiles, this is Cullen Fagan. For our next segment, we turn to a local rapper who writes lyrics that range from addressing the truth in his emotions to current political events to the lives of his family. And that's Justin Pines, a Brooklyn-based artist whose new track, Marvin, is about his uncle who died this year in Rikers Island. Justin joins me now in the studio to perform Marvin. Welcome to Audiophiles, Justin. The mic is yours. Death threw me for a loop, I'm not really talking truth I'm lying to all of you, demons got scenic views Angels lose halos too, thank you for all you do Your presence still in the room, I look like a walking tomb I've mourned for far too long, I wrote too many songs I've loved too many ghosts, I'm still holding on to hope Black men they die alone, the closest father I know Black boys get torn to march just as soon as we turn to ghosts Buck all these people dog, I'm feeling like I'm a fraud I fell in love again, but honestly, I'm lost in the fog That's that black man-ish, look at that black man's wrist These women gonna fetishize and just ride him cause it's in Then tell some lies on the brother, that's the pride once again I can't even sit in this grief, can't say what you mean to me I used to walk in your shoes, I used to wanna be you Then you went to prison, and that is when out my view And grandma took me to visit, but couldn't tell me the truth What the F could you do? I started to forget you you. I'm alone in 
this room These tears behind all my eyes The pain never showed no surprise I scream at God late at night They chose for signs over life I ain't choose rap over mom My scars they said I'd be on I ain't forget about you, unk I had to distance you, unk It turned abusive too, unk I blamed on prison, not us Can't blame, never learn how to trust I'm broke, but keep it a buck I got some scars for my lust I know you do too, unk That's the blood within us I gave my heart to the world I tried to cope with some girls Come scared to die all alone I heard you died all alone It's been 10 years with no home We both got holes in our souls We both ain't know how to cope You still out here selling dope I remember mom with a jokes It's sad when you lose all hope But my suicide note It says I can't go It says I can't go I miss you man Janet said it's all for you The love that we lose The scars that we shed It's a thug life but you shouldn't die in the feds Come home Valerie You still in love with fantasies I guess I am too Depressed but still move Repress the spirit through Can't forget you I had to still move Cause without what could I do I dream a better life I'm pines to death right I had to find a reason to just stay alive If you really want it, it's all for you If you dream about me, I'm coming through If you really want it, it's all for you If you dream about me, I'm coming through If you really want it, it's all for you If you dream about me, I'm coming through If you really want it, it's all for you If you dream about me Justin, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So the track you just performed for us, mm-hmm. what was it about losing your uncle while he was still in Rikers that inspired you to write about him? Um, well, my music's always kind of been about my life. Like, I have this phrase I say a lot where I say, like, art is how I process life. So, like, with everything going on in my life at the time, I think that was the start of me really processing his death. Not sure how much I have processed it since it's happened. But yeah, that was the main thing that like helped me process everything that was happening in real time, especially since it was such a public thing. And like once something happens publicly, it kind of removes any control you have of being able to process it. So it sounds like both of you were like very close. I mean, a lot of like he was the closest thing I had to a father, but also like even in terms of being a rapper, like a lot of the swag, a lot of like how he was and things like that. Like, if he wouldn't want me to, like, come up here and portray him like a tragedy, he would want me to come and portray him like he was fly. And I think a lot of our relationship, a lot of, like, who you are is, like, rubbed off by the people who raised you or the people you're around and things like that. And can you tell me a little bit about your uncle? Um, Yeah, my uncle was was born in Jersey. Like, his nickname, everyone would call him out here, was Jers. He was, like, really into, like, jewelry, chains, like, clothes and stuff like that. He cared about his family. Him and my mom were really close like, he was a very big influence and part of my life, you know? Like, I, something I always appreciate about my uncle, and I said at his funeral, is the fact that he always tried. And especially black men aren't given that a lot, someone who's willing to always try. Speaking of influence, sort of like, what kind of influence did he have you on your personal life? In my personal life? I mean, just like how he moved, but also like how not to move, you know, like dealing with internal trauma, dealing with things, and also like seeing how people can get stuck in trauma loops and things like that and that not defining them or making them bad people or just being like being human 
And can you tell me a little bit about your musical background? How long have you been rapping and writing music for? Uh, I've been rapping since I was five. I've been good since like 2019. So like my mom had me later in life, so I grew up listening to a lot of Motown, a lot of soul music, a lot of Prince, Michael Jackson. And then like the rappers are kind of just like the usual picks, like Biggie, Tupac, like Ye, Kendrick, Jay-Z, Eminem, Outkast, like all the gods. Like, like yeah. And so you pull your, from your own personal experiences for your music, but yeah. you have some other music that leans more political. For example, you recently wrote about an article about what's going on in Gaza right now. For me, there's like, I think there, I believe there's a James Baldwin quote that says the personal is political. Like when you're mm -hmm. oppressed people, like the per there is no difference between the personal and political. If you can't eat today, then that's personal. For me, I thought it was very important that all artists and cultural workers like take a stand in a moment like this. And especially like, like I was kind of in between on writing it just because of how gross a lot of people who try to exploit tragedy are to me and things like that. But I was just really, I mean, disgusted, horrified. Like in the article, I speak about why I wrote it, which was because a little girl was buried under rubble and thought she was dead until someone like rescued her and said she is as beautiful as the moon. Wow. When did you sort of go into this new direction with your music and why? Our art is pointless without people. So I think it's very important that we be in tune of why we're doing this work, which is why it's like for me, it's just I don't, I'm bad at being fake. Like I, my style is just who I am. And can you tell me finally, like, tell me a bit about what you're working on next and where we can listen to your music? I mean, sure. Um, I have a song dropping next time, next month with my brother Shrebby. Um, we're dropping a song called Slave with a Face Tat. It's going to be on all platforms. My music's on, like, Spotify, Apple, all that stuff. Like, Slave with a Face Tat's going to be on all that stuff. Mm. Justin Pines is an independent rapper based in Brooklyn. His new song, Slave with yeah. a Face Tat, comes out next month. Justin, thanks again for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Shout out to Jersey. That's where I'm from. You're listening to Audio Files from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Shopping for clothes and shoes in thrift stores is a favorite pastime for fashionistas of all stripes. Now many shoppers are starting to notice an influx of fast fashion items on the racks of their favorite thrift stores. And some Gen Z consumers say that undermines the thrifting experience. Reporter Jayana Smith has the story. I found these jeans the other day, the True Religion jeans, for like $20 at a thrift store in Manhattan which was like kind of unreal to find that. Uh, I've also this found... is Brandon Avery, a 20-year-old content creator studying fashion business management at the Fashion Institute of Technology. We're at Urban Jungle, a roomy thrift shop in Brooklyn beloved by avid New York City thrifters. This is like the first thrift store that I came to when I came uh, to New York, and I literally spent like two or three hours in here just like looking at different stuff. Today, Avery is looking for a garment to upcycle for a school project. I'm trying to find like a more baggy pair of jeans because I have another pair of like big jeans that I, or like big jorts, and then another pair of big jeans that I'm gonna put one on top of the other like that. Like you feel me? Thrifting was popularized in the 1930s. Before that, 
there was a stigma against buying secondhand clothes. But during the Great Depression, people really had no other choice but to turn to stores like Goodwill and the Salvation Army. Since then, the popularity of thrifting has come and gone in waves, but it's never been as popular as it is now. Stores today are largely kept afloat by millennials and Gen Zers like Avery. Over three-fifths of Gen Z search for second-hand items before purchasing new ones, according to the National Association of Resale Professionals. I've been thrifting, like, basically my whole life, but I really got into thrifting in high school because, uh, you know, we had free dress, so you could wear whatever you want, and I was like, I want to pop out in a cool, different outfit almost every day, and thrifting is how I was able to do that. Besides being an inexpensive way to buy clothing, thrifting is touted as a sustainable option by fashion and environmental experts. Over 90 million tons of clothing end up in landfills each year. Thrifting helps reduce some of that waste by decreasing demand for new clothing and giving other people's old clothes new life. But this comfortable balance is being threatened. Fast fashion, which refers to clothing made cheaply and quickly to keep up with trends, is ending up on thrift store racks more and more, and thrifters are starting to notice. Yes, I see a lot of Fashion Nova, a lot of Sheen, a lot of Forever 21 in the thrift sometimes. There are still some gems here and there, um, but it is taking over like a lot. Bella Buckner, NYU student and content creator, agrees. Buckner says the influx of trendy fast fashion pieces has made it a bit harder to thrift. I feel like when I first started thrifting, um, like I said, it was a lot more gems. It was like back-to-back -back finds. Like, it was so much easier to find really good things. You didn't have to spend all day in there. I feel like it takes all day to kind of dig through all the things that, like, you know are just not going to be good quality and get to the actual pieces that, like, are, that are important. One could argue that donating fast fashion is better than ending up in a landfill. While true per se, the issue isn't so black and white. Fast fashion isn't really designed to last. Many items often distort after a few washes. Placing it in a thrift store doesn't change its inherent quality issues. And, as expert Adam Minter explains to sustainable fashion advocacy group Remake, donating trash can cost thrift stores money. He uses Goodwill as an example. One of the things I really learned from Goodwill is people will dump their garbage onto Goodwill. That could be textiles that just don't have a market. You know, and so when I say don't have a market, I mean, if there's some really cheap textiles, there will be a market for that. It may be cut into rags, it may end up as stuffing somewhere, but, but you know, they make less money from that. And that takes away money from the job training programs that they want to find. For now, the most obvious solution is to stop buying fast fashion firsthand, or at least to be realistic about what you buy and how many times you're going to wear it. That's an uphill battle. Data shows that by 2027, the fast fashion industry will be worth over $180 billion, an increase of $60 billion from this year. But thrifters say they'll fight the good fight. Avery pointed to the growth of online thrift platforms. I think people are always going to be buying clothes and donating stuff. But I do think Depop and like all those online stuff, that's where all the like really good stuff goes. So you have to have to be online. Buckner said she'll continue to chase the thrill of finding quality items in physical stores. It's something rewarding about getting your clothes and going home and putting together these outfits and when somebody asks you, oh, where'd you get that top or where'd you get that skirt or where'd you get those shoes? Oh yeah, I thrifted it. It kind of feels like it all paid off in the end. For Audiophiles, I'm Gianna Smith.
November is National Adoption Month, and for those who are advocating for reforms within adoption, it's known as National Adoption Awareness Month. Using this month as a platform to raise awareness of the issues roughly 6 million American adoptees face. Many people see adoption as a beautiful way to build a family. But what most don't understand is what adoption can take a toll on the mental health of all those involved in the process. Marcella Moslow is an adoption competent therapist and co-host of the podcast Adoptees Dish. She is herself adopted from Colombia and calling in today from Buffalo, New York. Marcella, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Marcella, so for National Adoption Awareness Month, if you go on to places like Adoptee Twitter or Adoptee TikTok, mental health seems to be at the top of the list. Why do you think that is? Well, over the years, we've definitely seen that society is talking a lot more about mental health in general. And during this month in particular, many adoptees are kind of reclaiming this month in order to talk about a lot of aspects of adoption that don't necessarily get a lot of attention. So discussing the specific mental health impacts of being an adoptee and walking through the world as an adoptee, what that looks like, how that feels like, whereas historically, this wasn't really what was centered during this month. It was previously more about promoting adoption, talking about it in kind of a one-sided narrative. And so a lot of adoptees out there are really taking this month and, you know, other months throughout the year to shine a light on the fact that um, adoption does have some really challenging aspects to it. And a lot of people aren't familiar with that information. So what are sort of the mental health struggles that people who are impacted by adoption face? Yeah, so mental health as well as just emotional health impacts, this can even be physical health impacts, are often stemming from trauma that people have experienced and how individuals hold that in our systems, how we experience a specific trauma. Any individual who has experienced separation from their gestational carrier um, at any kind of critical development point or who has experienced relinquished or been adopted, all of that stems from trauma. And so this is something that manifests differently for everybody. It's a case-by-case basis. But some of the things that we see that are common among adoptees are things like anxiety, depression, disordered eating, challenges in interpersonal relationships. Uh, suicidal ideations, uh, could be sleep challenges. Um, so the, the, the spectrum really is pretty wide. And what's the prevalence of these issues among the adoptees compared to like the rest of the population? Yeah, so a lot of people have gotten more familiar with the statistic that adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide, which is um, a really big statistic compared to the rest of the general population. And overall, over the years, there's been, um, you know, research that's done that shows adoptees are really overrepresented in mental health facilities, in hospitalizations, in the prison system, and in rehab facilities. Um, But there definitely needs to be some additional information specifying, uh, you know, the adoptee population and how that's relevant for all of us. These situations are like very challenging and hard. Is there anything that can make it better to sort of mitigate these risks? Yeah, so I think that it is, it's never something that's going to be completely trauma-free. That's just not the nature of this kind of experience. I think that absolutely there can be more training and more education out there for people that are pursuing adoption, as well as people that are going to be providing care, because across the board, we're seeing a lot of care providers that just don't have the expertise in this area and can unfortunately cause a lot of additional harm. 
I think that figuring out ways societally to prioritize family preservation and to provide supports and not see adoption as, um, you know, a, a top solution, but one that maybe is, um, you know, a last resort if all other uh, options have been exercised. And if it does take place, if an adoption does take place, you know, looking through ways to make sure that that is open, that that is honest, that adoptees have access to really important information and their documentation, um, and really just making sure that there can be some links to uh, biological family members if that is if that's available. You specialized in working with those who are impacted by adoption. Is there any special training for this? Unfortunately, there is not a ton of adoption-specific training out there, and um, even most master's programs for people that go into some of the helping professions, this is not really a topic that is addressed very much. Um, over the years, there are, you know, some organizations that have created uh, certification programs or training programs. Um, I personally don't feel like that is enough. And, you know, it's not as comprehensive as it needs to be. And a lot of times that programming is not created by those who have lived this experience. Um, so for people that are looking to get into the field, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of research and a lot of continuing consultation. It's a lot of, you know, having to find trainings that stem in neurobiology, trauma, attachment, uh, it's play therapy if you're working with kids, a lot of somatic work. So those are some things that, um, you know, are important for people to be diving into in terms of training. Marcella, thanks so much for coming onto the show. Marcella Moslow is an adoption competent therapist and co-host of the podcast Adoptees Dish. Marcella, thanks again. New Yorkers have an answer for everything. But in the face of an emergency or disruption, we can all stand to be more prepared. With Notify NYC, you can get hyper-local, verified alerts from the city of New York, telling you about what's happening directly around you and what you should do about it. And maybe give a friend a helping hand. Get ready with Notify NYC. For more information and to sign up, visit nyc.gov notify or call 311 or download the Notify NYC app. Brought to you by New York City Emergency Management and the Ad Council. From the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, this is Audiophiles. Welcome back. You're still listening to Audiophiles. Diwali is a Hindu festival of lights that celebrates the triumph of light over darkness. It is observed by adherents of many Indian faith traditions. Back in June, it was declared as an official holiday in New York City, with over 200,000 residents of Indian descent. Because Diwali fell on a Sunday this year, students will have the days off starting next year. Reporter Sajino Sharesta attended the celebration in Lower Manhattan and asked Indian Americans what it means to have Diwali officially recognized by the city and sent us this report. The country you are from and the festival that you celebrate is being recognized in another country, so it feels good. Although I'm not in favor of declaring a lot of public holidays, honestly speaking, but I would take it. Like it used to be a floating holiday for us, like optional. But now if it's like a regular vacation and a holiday, then it's really exciting. I live in Switzerland and I'm studying there. Nobody really celebrates Diwali or anything Indian there. So coming here for Diwali really feels like I'm at home. So I'm really glad that I can experience this away from home. 
it will help me to not get so caught up in the hustle and the grind and remember um, to commemorate more actively, um, you know, just take the time to spend with family and things like that. I've been to many other countries where Indian tradition is not considered as something, but here every Indian festival is celebrated properly and I'm happy I, I'm not missing my home country so much. Those were voices from a Diwali celebration earlier this month. They spoke to reporter Sajina Sharasta. The Professional Staff Congress is the union that represents more than 30,000 CUNY faculty and staff members who have been working without a contract since February. Now PSC CUNY, as it's known, it's gearing up for a day of action at the governor's office on December 2nd. Earlier this month, union members at three Bronx campuses delivered petitions to their college presidents to demand a new contract. But reporter Kimberly Izar joined them at Hostos Community College and sent this report. About 20 faculty, staff, and students are gathering on Grand Concourse to call for a new and fair contract for PSC CUNY. When is the time for staff promotions? The time is now! That's co-chair Craig Bernardini leading the chance. He says today's rally was supposed to be inside Hostos, but the college emailed this morning to deny the request to be indoors. Time for student cafeteria. The time is now. Among their demands are basic infrastructure and facilities, like working elevators and a cafeteria. Burgess Cruz is a career specialist at Hostos and has worked for the school for 16 years. But I am more interested in seeing why we don't have a cafeteria for low-income students who survive on food stamps. About 74% of Hostos undergraduate students received financial aid in 2021. Daniel Casey is an adjunct lecturer. He says the union is calling for across-the-board salary increases of 8% in the first two years and 4% in the following three years. We believe in our mission. We believe in our methods. We also believe that we are exploited. We are not paid uh, enough uh, for each hour that we work, and we are not being paid for every hour that we work. After the rally... Co-chair Marcella Benciveni and about a dozen union members started making their way to the office of Hoso's president, Dr. Daisy Coco de Felipez. On a large white poster board were the list of demands printed in large black lettering and the word RESPECT in capital red letters. The group proceeds to pass security up the stairs and into the office to deliver their petition. Yeah, it doesn't, we actually just have a very special delivery for her. Ben has been a history professor at Hostos for nearly 20 years. While she's grateful to be full-time faculty, she says more must be done to reach the most vulnerable workers at CUNY. From adjunct to college technicians to office assistants, everybody feels overburned and underappreciated. And it's, so it's not about, like, you know, salaries that provide for the basic needs, but it's, you know, salary that allows you to also do the things that you love, especially in a city like New York City. Keeping classes open at Hostos is another key demand. Co-chair Craig Bernardini has taught at Hostos since 2004, and he says class cancellations due to under-enrollment affect not only students. It impacts the advisors who have to help them find a new schedule. It impacts the faculty members who have to find another class to teach, and therefore a part-timer might lose their class because of that, might lose their health insurance because of that. He says it all adds up to a disproportionate impact on Hostos mostly Black and Latino population. I mean, it just has a ripple effect throughout this population that 
you know, it, it's, it's much, much more going to impact the students that we teach than students who are going to, like, say, what we used to call traditional college students going to a private university, right? Hostos President Dr. Coco de Filipez declined an interview request, saying that contract negotiations are being handled centrally by CUNY. When is the time for fully funded CUNY? The time is now. The time is now. The time is now. Reporting for Audio Files, this is Kimberly Izar. School districts across the country are slashing arts programs such as drama, music, and dance, citing budget cuts. Imani Nazinga is one of those public school teachers. She teaches dance, but as resources for schools become slimmer and slimmer, she has to take on other roles. Nazinga gives a window into the grueling life of a public school teacher. My job description is dance teacher, but I also am a para slash assistant teacher slash... Dean slash hall monitor slash 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 slash. My name is Imani Nzinga. I was born in Jersey, raised in Connecticut, living in New York. So tri-state baby. And I am a dancer as well as a dance educator. I have been dancing for 16 years. Everyone has to do their part. Everyone has to do their job. If they don't, then the kids are going to miss out. And so you have the people who really care about their job that picks up the slack of the others so that the kids don't notice that they're missing out on something, which makes the people who are doing the most overstimulated. But it's not as obvious when you have the folks like myself and others who do all the excess jobs, but we still only get the salary of the position we were hired for. So now, this is when these outside gigs, when I do put that extra time, when they don't pay you the money, that's where the issue is, because it's like, you know we're in New York. You're hiring New York dancers. You want professional dancers, which means like, a lot of our time just spent training. Every month, I end up in the red. Before, like these past couple of years, I would be distraught. When I tell you I'm so in the hole, like IRS is knocking on my door any second, like I'm there, but what can I do? Like, let me just focus on, okay, I'm getting better with dance. I have a job. I get to sleep in the bed at night. At least one meal. I'm cool, you know what I'm saying, for now. And I know it's temporary. I think people like me, no matter what, even if we're over it, we're still gonna keep doing that. The issue lies after we clock out. Cause then after that now, I'm like, I don't wanna talk to anybody. I just wanna go to my bed. I need to decompress. I just don't wanna talk to anybody. I don't wanna answer any questions. You know, I wanna just dance and just not, you know, do the most. I wanna do what I love. I don't wanna do anything else. So that's the part where I miss out. My social life is crap. Relationship, what is that, you know? I feel like if I find somewhere else, it wouldn't be as bad, but 
here you gotta pick you gotta pick something that you gotta sacrifice right now I'm sacrificing the money so that I can keep myself in shape keep myself busy and dance Alia Fisher reported that story. New York City is getting a bit greener as Mayor Adams' administration is launching a new program to extend the city's greenway corridors by 40 miles. Greenways are protected bike are protected bike lane infrastructures, usually in parks or on streets. This is not only good for the environment, but it's also good for residents of areas that have been re- needing more and better transportation options. Keeping the environment in mind regarding waterfront development is also helpful when it comes to flooding. Here to talk to us today is Robert Fanuzzi. He's the president of the Bronx Council for Environmental Quality and a professor at St. John's University. Robert, thanks for coming on to the show. Oh, you're welcome, Christian. Thanks for having me. So did I define Greenway correctly? And can you talk about a bit why this is good news for New Yorkers? Well, it's important to have a little bit of comparison. So imagine an emerald necklace of a ribbon of green connecting your major parks. That was a foundation of progressive city planning at the turn of the century. And it was really meant to maximize green by which people meant green space um, because they already saw that... um, urban development was going to get very, very dense. So greenways were designed for green space and connecting of green spaces. And in 1993, the Bronx actually issued a Bronx Greenway map. The Bronx is these two fantastic parks in Van Cortlandt Park in the the west and Pelham Park in the east. So why don't we make this network of bicycle paths to connect? So um, greenways have evolved, though. Because now when you read about the mayor's announcement, they emphasize bicycles. And one of the definitions of what makes a greenway green now is that you're using bicycles. Okay. And not always do you include green spaces or the connection in green spaces in in your idea of a greenway. So um, one of the most important things that my organization has fought for Bronx Council of Environmental Quality is to maximize green space within our asphalt and dense urban neighborhoods and to really get people to their water um, because one of the earmarks of an equitable neighborhood and environmental justice in the city is does your community have green, number one, and number two, does your community have access to their waterfront, which for us is kind of like a sacred thing and it's a measure of equity. Um, Some neighborhoods have waterfront access and some don't. And um, you can tell where greenways are really needed um, to get people to the waterfront. And that's always been our goal. Have you seen other areas in the city that could benefit from from an approach like this? Well, Manhattan has completed an entire perimeter, an entire circumference of greenways. There are a few missing pieces. Um, But you can really see that um, that was built around access both to the waterfront and recreation and biking. So the city is really undertaking this master planning now, and it is being led by Department of Transportation with assistance from other agencies. But we talked before about why, uh, how bicycles are really important. 
Um, we definitely have areas in the Bronx that are kind of like recreational deserts that don't have access, good access to waterfront or to green spaces. So this is definitely going to help. Um, right now, we have an issue with um, looking at the Bronx compared to Manhattan because when you look, uh, let's imagine you're on the Harlem River. You can bike and walk along the Harlem River if you're in Manhattan. Try doing that in the Bronx. It's the same shoreline. It's very difficult to happen. And um, we've got some issues in different neighborhoods. For instance, in the Bronx, you have the railroad um, right on the, right on the uh, waterfront. And um, they don't have that in Manhattan. And then um, along the waterfront on, on upper Manhattan, you have a beautiful park. We have a couple of parks that are being built along the Bronx, but more often you see huge towers being built, built along the waterfront. And uh -huh. when you see huge towers, you have to say, who's really in charge here? Are we planning for equitable waterfront access? How will these plans sort of affect future floodings? Um, a greenway should be green. So although the Department of Transportation is doing their best to get as close to the waterfront as they can, a greenway should be an environmental contribution to the city with a border of green and along the waterfront, it should spur a living shoreline that can absorb force of storms and um, help dissipate some uh, of our uh, flooding problems. Thank you so much, Robert Fanuzzi. Robert Fanuzzi is the president of the Bronx Council for Environmental Quality and professor at St. John's University. Robert Fanuzzi, thanks you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, this is Audio Files. The first Broadway show to be set in a hair salon in Harlem is ending its run on November 19th. The play is called Jaja's African Hair Braiding, and to get a better sense of the inspiration behind its characters, reporter Rachel Goldman checked in on salon workers in Harlem and sent us this report. It's a rainy Sunday in Harlem. The corner of Fifth Avenue and 125th Street is mostly empty. But nestled between a church and a seafood restaurant, Moss's African hair braiding salon is full. In the front room, hair braiders work on their clients' hair as they comb, part, and gel, over and over, like a dance. In a back room are cascades of boxes of synthetic hair in every color imaginable. And the choreographer of it all is the owner, Masa. We got Fulani braid, we got travel braid, we got box braid, we got Nalex box braid. She's got an encyclopedic knowledge of her braids, the type that Masa says comes from her love for the craft, one that commits her to perfecting the straight parts and extra crispy braids that keep her clients coming. If I braid in hair, if they're happy, that makes me happy because it's to me like I'm doing something good for somebody and the person is happy. I'm doing my job, I love my job, and I'm proud to be a hair braider. Her passion and her knowledge for African hair braiding come from her 30 years of experience in Harlem. And she's passing on that love to her daughter, who also works as a hair braider at the salon. And stories like theirs are just beginning to be told on Broadway. Jaja's African hair braiding is a play about a day in the life of Jaja, the owner of a fictional salon in Harlem, her daughter and the braiders working there. 
It premiered in October and was so well-received, the show's run was extended. Like Jaja, Masa comes from West Africa. Masa says she's loved hair braiding since her childhood in Liberia. When I get here, I went to one of my friend's shop. She was having a hair braiding place, and I told her, I would like to do a hair braiding. It's my dream. I learned how to do better, like a, because we have different ways of braiding in Africa and here. I don't care how professional you are in Africa when you get here, you have to change. It, we, they have a little bit different way of doing it. And I was learning that for a couple of years. So I was doing that. When I get to professional, customer always come and ask my boss, where is Masa? Can she do my hair? I feel confident myself. Now I say, okay, now. I can do my own. She's got the craft of her hair set. She just needed to work on her entrepreneurial style. You cannot just jump over and get business. You need to post some money before you take your business. You got to rent, buy your chairs, and buy the mirrors, and rent the house and store. This is how I do before it was a long process. Moss's journey to running her own salon has been a steep learning curve in American culture and business. Journalist Harisha Tall writes about the experiences of the African diaspora, and she says many salon owners and braiders have a similar story. Hair braiding is, is kind of a staple. There are lots of West African hair braiding salons kind of dotted throughout Harlem. And in addition to being places of employment, they're also social centers. And But also saying, like, this is a profession that is wildly unstable right now. You know, these are women who come to the States from generally Francophone countries. They don't speak English, so they learn English, and they sometimes learn a new skill from scratch, which is braiding. They have to navigate citizenship. They have to navigate racism. Um, sometimes they have to navigate uh, ethnic tensions. Navigating all of this is a daily grind, and some of these days go on a long, long time. Aisha Karamako runs her own salon, Aisha Hair Braiding, on West 128th Street. Last customer seven. Sometimes we're here for 11, 10, 12, 1 in the morning. It takes like a six hours, seven hours sometimes, eight hours. Her daughter Fatima says navigating these long days in the salon takes experience, especially with the language barriers many immigrant hair braiders face. The beginning is not going to be easy. It's like you come to this country, you have to learn how to speak the language first and before you start doing some kind of business. She says the community works together to get through it. So when you come here, we work together like team. So some people, they understand English, some people, they don't. So if it, she don't understand something, she can ask me. If I don't understand something, I can ask somebody else. African hair salon workers often have to endure occupational challenges, such as hand injuries and abusive customers, as Harisha Tall wrote in a piece for Harper's Bazaar. But she says while these women struggle daily, they are not to be pitied. In contrast, Tall says reporting on African hair braiders has made her more proud of her background as the daughter of an African hair braider in Harlem. You know, there's so much resilience that these women have. I just learned how much these women endure and the fact that they still come into work every day and the fact that they can still find joy and community in the work they do. I gained uh, a new awe for them, a new a newfound respect. Maybe Tall's process is what people like about Jaja's story in Broadway, seeing the amount of strength and community all woven into the braid. This is Rachel Goldman reporting for Audio Files. 
Leila Barreto is a survivor of Graves' disease. Roughly 1% of the population has Graves, an autoimmune disease that affects five times more women than men. It can cause hyperthyroidism, which includes symptoms such as heat sensitivity, muscle weakness, muscle tenderness, fatigue, and even the breakdown of certain muscles. Barreto, a former flamenco dancer, was wheelchair-bound after she was diagnosed with the disease in 2019. But she didn't see as a she didn't see this as a barrier to living her life and created her own kind of physical therapy. She used hula hooping to get her back on her feet. She now teaches hula hooping through an organization she started called Hula Hoop to Hoop to Health. Audiophiles reporter Amanda McHugh went to Barreto's studio to see how it's done. Uh, I give them all different names, and they're quite wild and crazy, but they also look very beautiful when, when you're in rotation spinning and hooping because there's collage work in, in essence. So this one's got like, looks. does it look, it looks like it has magenta tape, yellow with polka dots, and you've also got purple tape and green tape, and you've got green sparkles and gold sparkles. What name is this one? Lucy. And what about the one I'm holding? Betty. <laughs> so Lucy and Betty. We're going to be hooping Lucy and Betty. So before we actually hula hoop, we're going to talk about hula hooping in, in general. Okay. So we want to think like a three-year-old. We, we want to not think in essence. So we want to kind of unthink when we learn to hula hoop. And it's about the process and it's about the journey. I'm Leila Barreto, and I, I run New York's only travel hula hoop school, Hoop to Health. And I've had a lot of tragedy and trauma in my life, and I, I had to reinvent my whole identity several times. So part of my story is I have muscle atrophy, and I built Hoop to Health for many reasons, but for my main reason was for my, for my physical therapy. Many doctors, neurologists said I would never walk again. I had to kind of start life over at 51. When I got sick and couldn't teach again, I'm an artist, so I decided I would re-rebirth myself, recreate myself. I'm a former dancer. I was a flamenco dancer. So I had been hooping since 40, and I decided... I would do something tailored around my illness. And so I built Hoop to Health, but I built it around my physical needs, my spiritual needs. I've spent about four and a half years struggling with walking, but I spent about two completely unable to walk, which I'm now in remission from two years. So in essence, that for me, I feel like the hula hoop saved my life. After you have more hoop flow too, you will be able to turn yourself around. Well, <laughs> yeah, 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 but that's the thing. You have to get your hoop flow first on your waist. Okay. Before you can walk around, you can then be able to walk, and you can then do it for like as long as you want. You can just keep it up and maintain. I was going to show off. That's my point, but that's how we all are. It's not to show off about trying to get to the next thing real fast. April 19, 2017. I passed out my desk at 8.30 in the morning. A month later, I'm unable to walk. I am immediately diagnosed with Graves' disease. I am rushed to the hospital. I needed five transfusions. I was the walking dead. I don't really know how I was working as a community organizer. I never thought I'd see the day, but I'm here. <laughs> and now I have, I have low-grade fibromyalgia, so I'm hula hooping still not totally well. I hoop for a day, and then I rest for a day. I will have muscle aches 
whole body the next day. I consider myself not sick. I consider myself 70% there. Uh, in the hula hoop community, which I later learned is global, it's considered uh, the journey. It's about the journey. It's always life's about the journey. But if you can lose everything, uh, this makes me want to cry, <laughs> um, and just rebuild through your creativity, you, you, you always have something. And we just have to focus on the flow of the movements, like we should be trying to do in life. <laughs> and stay still in one thing. Yay, she's doing it. She's in the flow. In one day, not sure how. Oh, you said that too soon. It's her fault. I think you said it. Yeah, but still, for the first time, it's phenomenal. You're doing great. That was Layla Barreto of Hoop to Health. This story was reported by Amanda Carrie McHugh in Manhattan. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in to Audio Files. I'm your host, Christian Azario. This show was produced by Nicholas Magrino. Our associate producer is Amanda Carrie McHugh. And our imagining producer is Ashley Reed. Reporters for this episode were Rachel Goldman, Kimberly Izar, Amanda Carrie McHugh, Safia Riddle, Sajina Sharesta, Aliyah Fisher, Colin Fagan, and Jayana Smith. Our editors are Maggie Freeling and Richard Ye. Our sound engineers are Amber Watson and Chad Bernhardt. This episode featured music by Seldrill and Emil Winterholm, Mons Placier, Justin Pines, Jason Shaw, Beat Mechanic, All This Ignites. And thank you to our guests Marcella Moslow, Robert Fanuzzi, and Justin Pines. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. You can listen to more episodes of Audio Files on audiophilespodcast.com.